Like, I didn't think I was going to live to see my 25th birthday. Because I just saw the trajectory of where my friends went. I had several friends you know, die of drug or alcohol-related deaths. I saw people that I admired in the music industry die at an early age. And I was like, man, this is going to be the way to go because my self-confidence at that time was so low that I was like, well, I'm not going to ever achieve anything. What's it matter? I might as well just keep going down this path. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Today we have a treat. We're sitting down with Doug Bobst, who has and shares an unbelievable story about some of the adversity that he experienced early on in life and how that led him down this progression of drugs, kept escalating until he ultimately got convicted of a felon, felony, uh, went to jail, and in jail he met a person who changed his life for the better, believe it or not. And so he shares this incredible story that you will not want to miss. And um, now Doug shares his story through his podcast, The Adversity Advantage, and impacts lives every day, which is kind of cool to hear how things have come full circle for him. If you want to find out more about Doug and what he's up to, check out his podcast, as well as the interview that I have done on his show. Then we'll link that down below. But uh, without further ado, we bring you this episode with Doug Bobst. Dude, I'm so glad you're here. Me too, man. What a treat this is. I'm just going to, we're just going to roll into this. Let's go. Because, well, how long have we known each other now? Probably a year. A year. I remember you sitting down and interviewing Sean, and as soon as that interview was over, she called me and was like, that was my favorite interview I've ever done. I mean, think about that. She does like four interviews a week for the past 12 years, so kudos to you. Um, and now I have the pleasure of interviewing you. You're more of the expert, though. Your podcast, The Adversity Advantage, 319 episodes, is that right? That's right. 319. I, we're just over like 120 here. So anyway, welcome to town, and I appreciate you making it in person. Thanks, man. It means a lot. It means a lot like what Sean said. You know, I just try to have these these deeper conversations and trying to get in to know like the human, you know, behind like the celebrity or behind the athlete that maybe they don't get to talk about as much. You know, I know a lot of times when people interview athletes and celebrities, they want to talk about the accolades and some of the things that they've accomplished like externally. But I really like to talk about like what drives them internally and how they've made those changes. Cause it, at the end of the day, like it doesn't only more so relate to the audience, but I think also like the, the it helps that person remember that they are just a human too. They're not just like a statistic. They're not just a metal, you know, and it just, I think makes for a deeper conversation. And also maybe a more inspiring story where it's like, Oh, Sean, is like this and I'm also like that. And then maybe I can achieve this or actually pursue my dreams and, and achieve my goals, you know? Yeah. Because you know, like you, you played in the NFL and Sean obviously was an Olympian and everybody's trying to chase like their version of that. Right. Everybody's trying to make it like when, in whatever area it is, maybe it's like right now they're trying to have like a gold medal, like marriage, or they're trying to, you know, do do that kind of thing in school or they're trying to make it as a doctor. We, everybody can relate to the, to the process part. Not everybody relates to like, well, what was it like, like just being up on the podium, winning a gold medal? Like people are like, well, I may never achieve that. And I don't right. really want to achieve that. So it's hard to relate. Right. Let's back up a minute. I'm curious to hear how you got to where you are today. Where'd you grow up? Give us a little of the backstory, if you don't mind. Yeah, man. So I grew up in Maryland, born and raised, still live there now. And, you know, you mentioned that I host a podcast called The Adversity Advantage and growing up. I had, a, I had a lot of adversity, and I used adversity to my complete disadvantage. And adversity for me looked like divorce. My parents got divorced at five, and it was a hard divorce, man, because my parents hardly communicated with each other. And it was also at a time where I was five years old. This is like in the early 90s, where not a lot of kids' parents were getting divorced. So I started to look around me, and I'm like, what's wrong with me? Like, why am I like this? Why are people... Um, around me going to their parents' homes like all the time and I'm having to split you know time between my mom and my dad so I started to develop that mentality and then obviously you and Sean both professional athletes I love sports love playing sports love watching sports loved collecting you know sports cards like everything but I was so unathletic so uncoordinated and I was the kid that got picked last in gym and wasn't um, getting picked for the travel sports teams and stuff like that so I'm like, man, like, like, what's wrong with me? Like, why am I like this? Why are the same people that I'm spending time with making these teams, getting accolades, 
having success and I'm not like what's going on. And then also I didn't have any luck with girls. And I feel like as a guy, um, you know, when you're a kid, you're like thinking to yourself, like, all right, if I'm successful as a kid, that means that I'm going out with girls. Girls are interested in me. It means that I'm doing good in sports and it means that I'm like getting attention from people around me. And none of that was happening. Well, I mean, I was getting some attention, but it was like the bad attention. I was getting bullied. I was getting rejected a lot. And so all of this, as you can imagine, created this mountain of anxiety, this mountain of insecurity, this mountain of hatred towards myself that I just needed to find a way to escape. And that for me was marijuana. Um, it was the first time I really like started to escape. When I was 14 years old, I took my first hit off a marijuana pipe and I felt this massive weight come off my back. I finally felt at peace with who I was. I didn't have to worry about what girls were going to think of me. I didn't have to worry about what, what kids were going to say to me in school. I didn't have to worry about sports. I didn't have to worry about my future and my career. I didn't have to worry about anything. And that numbing feeling, Andrew, became so addicting. Because everybody wants to be at peace with themselves. Everybody wants to be able to look at themselves in the mirror and say, you know what, like, maybe you're not where you want to be. Maybe you're not, like, as good as you'd like to be in whatever arena of area of life. But at least you're content with who you are. Right. And I didn't have that as a teenager. And it just became this vicious cycle where then I began to smoke every day to support the tolerance that I had built up, started to sell a little bit on the side because, you know, pot wasn't cheap and I was making, you know, just above minimum wage working, which that was hard to support my drug habit. And that also created tension in the household between my, my parents and, um, you know, around my 16, it was, yeah, it was on my 16th birthday. My mom caught me weighing out a little bit of pot, um, to sell to somebody and she kicked me out of her house that day. And because I mean, at that point too, there were, there was other things that had happened. I had a party when she was in the hospital, not too long before that I was starting to act out. I was starting to behave in a very negative way. A lot of yelling, a lot of like anger mm -hmm. coming out. And so she just thought, and my, my dad just thought my family thought that, all right, he's obviously not doing well in the situation that he's in going to this school, hanging around these kids, doing these things. Let's remove him from that environment and place him in a different environment. And that, that different environment was me going to live with my dad full time, which felt like the biggest slap in the face to me because my mom knew that my dad and I butted heads a lot growing up tons. Like we didn't get along hardly at all. And also I just felt completely abandoned and betrayed. And in the moment where I felt like I needed my mom most, she was just like, you know what? Like, I don't know how, what to do anymore. Like you're going to go with, live with your dad Hopefully that will change. Now, again, I think that she was doing the best that she could with the situation. Like, I, I made choices that got me to that position. But that's just the reality of how I was feeling. Hmm. And while the intention was to pull me out of that environment and have me shift gears a little bit, it also created a lot of trauma. Because, like, I got, as I said before, abandonment issues, anger, you know, what's wrong with me? Like, all these things are now building up even hmm. more. So I ended up changing schools within 24 hours, completely new environment. Wow. Oh, yeah. Went from a suburban high school where it was like kind of preppy. You know, people would wear like, you know, pink polo shirts and vineyard vines and polo and stuff like that to a rural, to a rural high school where there was a drive your tractor to school day. Completely different environment. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. And so I did whatever I could to fit in. I made new friends, was made myself known as the guy who could get pot to try to, again, create, you know, more people that I could spend time with getting high. And then also to, to get some sense of validation because for me, like once I started to be the guy who was getting high all the time and buying weed, people wanted to hang out with me that ne didn't necessarily want to hang out with me before. And that became addicting because now I'm getting validation from people that were giving me validation, maybe in a negative way, but now it's in a positive way because they're looking forward to spending time with me. But at the end of the day, it was still negative because they were only spending time with me because I had pot, right? And then I continued down this path of debauchery throughout high school and would cut class with my friends. And, you know, all, cause all we would do is we would, we would, you know, cut class and we would listen to music and we'd get high and we would uh, get food and then we would come back hoping we wouldn't get caught. But, you know, school, administrator, school administrators picked up on the fact that, you know, I wasn't attending class regularly. So I barely graduated high school because my attendance was poor. 
because of my friends and I skipping and getting high. And then as soon as I graduated high school, I started to now sell pot to make money to where now I'm picking up pounds of pot a week and like, you know, giving it out and selling it to, to make profit. And that man became so addicting, not the money. It was more like I could finally feel like wanted and needed because my phone would ring like off the hook all day. Like, yo, Doug, can I get this? Yo, Doug, can I get that? And it was so addicting to be like, man, I'm finally, I finally found myself. Like people want me, people need me. Mm. And then that led to me, me selling pot at a substantial level led to me meeting other people that were in the drug game. And then when you do that, you meet people with harder drugs, started experimenting with cocaine not too long after I graduated high school. Um, and the problem was my addictive nature caught up with me and I got to the point where I was snorting like an eight ball of coke a day. And you couple that with the fact that I had some like crippling anxiety as a kid, it just didn't go well together, mm -hmm. right? So I had to find something that really just took the edge off completely from everything from now me worrying about my future because of what I was doing with selling drugs, all the insecurities, anxieties, fears, um, trauma that I had, you know, had built up over time for me as a kid. Plus the fact that I'm now have a, had a cocaine habit that was exacerbating my anxiety. I needed to find something to, to cure that. And that was Oxycontin. And when I was like 18, 19 years old, a, a friend of mine offered me a five milligram Percocet and I took it and I was like, wow, like, oh my gosh, like, I don't feel any pain anymore. Not physical pain, like emotional pain. And I felt that same feeling that I felt when I first started smoking pot. Wow. And the issue is, like, nobody thinks that they're going to start with pot and get to where I was with the oxy. Nobody does, right? But what happens is, I think for me, there was a lot of gateway pain, gateway trauma, gateway insecurities that, you know, led me to doing that. Like, I had to look at why I was doing all that, and it was to escape, it was to escape pain. So you get in this habit of, oh, hey, I'm anxious. Let me use this substance to ease that. Or, hey, I am feeling pain. Let me use this substance. And it's more of like a habit mindset of, hey, there's, a, there's an easy way out to this. There's a solution to this. And it's whatever drug solves that problem. Absolutely. I mean, because I, it's not like, at least for me, I mean, I think a lot of people relate to this and that I didn't like getting high necessary. I like the feeling it gave me. That's what I chased. I didn't chase the taste of marijuana. I didn't chase the um, necessarily the taste of cocaine or the taste of oxy. It was more like what those feelings did for me. Mm. It was the escape. The problem is some of these, these drugs hijack your brain. And a lot of times you don't know it. You just think you're doing stuff to, to have fun or doing what other kids are doing. But if you're not, a, you don't have any self-awareness and you don't realize like, I'm doing this to escape or I'm doing this to, to numb pain or I'm doing this because I'm anxious and I don't know how to deal with it. Like people aren't thinking like that when they're doing it. They're just doing it because they, they feel discomfort um, or maybe they're, they have like the jitters from not doing it a certain day. And they're like, well, I just got to do it right now. They're not thinking about like why they're doing it. Mm. And, and that feeling and those habits caught up with me in a very painful way because now my brain was wired just to seek, to seek instant gratification, to not deal with my problems, to not deal with my pain. And also it created this false sense of normalcy that I thought this was the way my, my life was supposed to be forever, forever. Like I thought I was going to die a happy man partying. Mm. Like I didn't think I was going to live to see my 25th birthday because I just saw the trajectory of where my friends went. I had several friends you know, die of drug or alcohol related deaths. I saw people that I admired in the music industry die at an early age. And I was like, man, this is going to be the way to go because my self-confidence at that time was so low that I was like, well, I'm not going to ever achieve anything. What's it matter? I might as well just keep going down this path. I'm not going to have a real job. I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to lose this weight because I was, you know, 50 pounds heavier than I am now. So I might as well just keep going down this path and self-sabotaging myself. Because I know I'm going to fail anyway. So why not help myself fail? And it's a, it's a vicious cycle. And a lot of times people don't even know that they're caught up in that cycle. The psychology of that is really, really interesting. Because you're like uh, doing anything you can to avoid discomfort, to avoid the pain, to avoid failure. Uh, 
and it really highlights the fact that all of those things, the pain, the discomfort, the failure are a necessary part of life, right? They go hand in hand in a lot of ways. They do. And it's like, what's interesting is that when you, you have like a, you know, you create like, um, like you find like a short term solution for long term pain it just doesn't work, right? You got to find a long term solution for the long term pain. Wow. And so what ends up happening is during discomfort, when you take, I guess, the easy way out, like I did, and I numb myself with substances, it creates a short term solution where I felt good. But long term, there's more pain. It makes my life even harder because now it's got the, it's messing up the psychology of my brain damaging relationships it's teaching me to to hide from my problems it's wiring my thinking to say okay if you have pain in your life it's not good you need to just get rid of it right away and that just creates so many you know problems downstream that a lot of times it becomes incredibly challenging to get out of that cycle and and it's not just people with drugs you see this all the time people checking out with scrolling on their phones people checking out with shopping people checking out with pornography people checking out with you name it, fill in the blank, where people are so afraid of sitting in the discomfort of their feelings and their emotions. And I've been there, and I, and I still struggle with this now in a healthy way, though, where, you know, instead, like when I'm, when I'm stressed or I'm having a hard time, my go-to coping mechanism for the last almost 15 years has been exercise, mm-hmm. running, hitting the gym, calling people. But what I've found is that there's certain times and I don't know if you've experienced this, where you just got to sit in the pain and you just got to sit with it yeah. and not necessarily mope and be pessimistic, but just sit and gain some self-awareness and some understanding as to like why this is happening and then figure out like what you're going to do moving forward. Because if you just check out, like, and I think fitness can be that for some people and you're just not used to just sitting there and developing self-awareness around the emotions and pain that you're experiencing, you'll never really have that healthy relationship with pain to where you understand that not only is it a it's a healthy part of life because pain helps you grow, but help you gain understanding for how you can grow into a better version of yourself in the future. Wow, I'm not gonna lie though you're you're making drugs seem rather appealing with how effective they are. So, what's the catch? I mean, the catch is they destroy your life on the back end, <laughs> because what a lot of times happens, most times it happens is. You get so addicted to a substance and it just hijacks your brain, hijacks your life. That that's all you care about. And you do anything to get it. And for me, when I started doing Oxycontin, that's when things took a turn for the worse for me to where, you know, I, I, I mentioned that I did a five milligram Percocet. That feeling became really addicting. So now I'm got, I'm doing five milligrams a day. 10 milligrams, 20, all the way up until I'm doing three, 400 milligrams of Oxycontin up my nose every single day to support my habit. Having to do 150, 100, 160 milligrams just to get out of bed in the morning. Half my left nostril was missing. And so along the same time, my relationships were crushed because I was so, I was so ashamed of the person that I had become that I didn't want to be around anybody who wasn't like me because I couldn't relate. I didn't want to hear people being like, Doug, you got to clean your life up. I didn't want to hear, Doug, you got to hold yourself accountable. I didn't want to hear, like, Doug, what are you doing? I didn't want to take any accountability. And I, and I wanted to blame other people for my problems. And that's what happens, I think, too, is that a lot of people in life, they experience a hardship, right? Like, I experienced hardship as a kid. But I use that hardship as an excuse to act like an idiot Throughout a good bit of my life, and do the things that I did, whether that was stealing, manipulating. Obviously, I talked about like my unhealthy relationship with drugs, because I could validate that story in my head to saying it's okay. Like the world owes you something. You had a bad childhood, so you deserve to do this. Mm. And you see this all the time with people, where people will point back to something that happened 10, 15 years ago as an excuse to why they're doing something. Now that's totally unrelated to that. So some people use adversity as motivation to get out of that poor situation, the bad situation they're in. You used adversity and that led to self-imposed 
additional adversity. You're like, hey, my parents are divorced. Let me do drugs. Yeah, I mean, and I, I didn't initially you know, think of it like that way. Right. Initially, it was like, all right, I'm trying to fit in. I see all the cool kids are getting high on the weekends or after school or whatever. Um, you know, I see like certain people that I admired in the music industry. I heard about them doing drugs. And I was like, it's just weed. Like, what's it going to do, right? Hmm. But then what I didn't realize was how addicting that that feeling became. And to where now I was using it to numb pain, you know, because I think there's also a time in life where, in life where you're doing this stuff, where there's a there's a point where you're, you start getting high and it becomes fun. You're doing it to party, to fit in, to have a good time. And then eventually you reach a point where it's not fun anymore. And now you're having to do that, that same drug or even harder drugs to kind of get you back to baseline or to numb the shame and pain that you've created as a result of beginning to do those drugs in the first place. Mm. Right. And so all of this kept caught up with me. Um, cause I, I also got like sloppier with my drug dealing as time went on with my opiate addiction to where you know, I was lending product and money and stuff to people I shouldn't have. I was you know, lying and manipulating to get certain things. I was getting other people involved in areas of my drug dealing that I shouldn't have. Like all this stuff was starting to catch up with me. Cause again, like once you get caught up in this addiction, specifically what I found like opiate addiction, you care about nothing else besides that addiction. Cause your brain is completely hijacked hmm. and I would do whatever I could to get my fix. And so Cinco de Mayo, 2008, I'm riding around with a few of my friends to make a drug deal. Had a half a pound of pot in my trunk, a couple thousand dollars in cash in the glove box. And there was a cop running radar. And I had a busted headlight at the time, which I had been meaning to fix. But again, because, you know, all I cared about was getting high and anything, anything that revolved around my, my drug dealing or drug using, like that didn't really fit in there, even though it should have. Because, you know, when, you're, when you have a busted headlight, it gives a police officer a reason to pull you over. So I decided... It would be a great idea to flash my high beams at the police officer to hide the fact that I had a busted headlight. But in reality, it just gave him a reason to pull me over because he's like, why is this dude high, high beaming me? <laughs> Lights go on. Hearts immediately since, uh, sinks to the pit of my stomach. Like, man, this is it. My life is over. My life's over. And my heart starts racing. I start, you know, obviously getting these crazy, like, physical sensations as, as the cop is now, like, approaching me. Comes up to my window. I, st I stammer to get my license and registration out. One thing leads to the next. Pulls me out of the car, searches it, finds everything, finds the pot, finds the money, finds a scale. And I'm in handcuffs in the back of this cop car. And I'm like, man, like, how did I get here? Like, I don't know if anybody who's listening to this, watching this, Andrew, I don't know about you and your life and in certain areas if you ever thought about this, where it's like everything comes to a head. And it's like, how did I get here? Like, how did the kid who just wanted to be loved how did the kid who just wanted to fit in? How did the kid who just wanted to be good at sports? How did this kid who just wanted attention from women? Like, how did this kid get in the back of a police officer's car in handcuffs facing felony drug charges? Like, how did he get here? And as I look back now and I've matured and I've gained a lot of self-awareness around the situation, it was because of my choices that I made in response to my situation when I was a kid. I mean, yeah, I, had a, I think I had a hard childhood and, and certainly people have had it harder than me, but I... And I chose to, to do what I did. Nobody forced me to do what I did. Mm. I made those choices. And so I'm in the back of this cop car, taken to, to, uh, taken to jail. I'm booked, and I'm charged with a felony um, fel felony drug charge. It was uh, possession, with intent to distribute, possession with intent to distribute marijuana. Wow. Yeah. My dad bailed me out the next day. And then this is, you know, this is May. So then in September, I end up going to court. I'm still 20 years old. And the judge, in my mind, I thought threw the book at me because he sentenced me to five years, but he suspended everything but 90 days, meaning if I messed up at all throughout the course of the probation he was going to give me, that I could have potentially gone back and done the full five years. So five years, he suspended everything but 90 days. He gave me five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. He looked at me, he's like, Doug, I'm going to make you a deal. I'm like, deal? I'm like, where's the deal? And he was like, you're young, you're 20. This felony conviction is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. This is back in 2008 when all that stuff is way more stigmatized than it is now. Like, you know, pot was thought of as like something that was, was horrible back then. And now it's like legalized in many states. So it's right. kind of like ironic for me to, to tell this story, but that's just the reality. And so, 
He's like, I'm going to make you a deal. He's like, if you complete everything without messing up, no missed probation appointments, no failed drug tests, you do your community service, you do everything I ask you to do. At the end of your five years of probation, you can write me a, you know, write me a letter for a modification, come back in court, and I will take the felony conviction off your record and give you a probation before judgment. Which probation before judgment is kind of like, a, it's almost like a, a, free, a free pass, if you will. Hmm. In the sense where it removes the conviction and it's like, all right, here's like a, you know, here, it's almost like a warning. And I was just like, all right, like there's no way I'm going to live to see my 25th birthday. Like I told you, that's how I thought. And I was like, it's 2008. Isn't the world supposed to end in 2012? Like all this stuff was going through my head. <laughs> and I was just like, I was just like, all right, I'll, I'll take the deal. Yeah. Take the deal. A few weeks later, I report to jail. And it was ironically a week after my 21st birthday. And the craziest thing about this whole story is I cried the day I went to jail because I didn't want to go in. And the day I left jail, I cried because I didn't want to leave. So here's what happened. So I go get to jail. You can imagine, as the kid, I described how I was as a kid. Unathletic, uncoordinated, significantly heavier than I am now, super out of shape. I was like, man, I'm going to get the crap beaten out of me. I'm going to get in all kinds of fights. And I'm, I'm just going to be, it's going to be a miserable experience for me. So I was filled with fear, anxiety. I was angry at everybody. My, angry at God, angry at the world, angry at my mom, my dad, everybody, right? These same feelings that led you to doing drugs in the first place. And I was even angrier now because, yeah. you know, you think that the drugs are the solution to the pain. But like we, I've talked about, like while they are a great short-term solution, they come with long-term consequences that a lot of people don't really think about when they're doing them, right? And so I walk into jail. And then on top of all this, I had to detox cold turkey from opiates, which was like having like the worst case of the flu possible for two to three weeks. And my soon-to-be cellmate was sitting there at the Scrabble table playing Scrabble, and he looked at me. He was like a more jacked version of Brad, of Brad Pitt from Fight Club. Okay. <laughs> he was just like, dude, you're going to start working out with me when you get through your detox. I was just like, no way, man. Like, have you seen me? Like, I could have been a model for Pillsbury at the time. Like, he just, but he just saw that I needed something. He saw me with my shoulders rounded forward. He saw me, like, very soft-spoken. He just, I was like a zombie in there. He just knew that I was, like, completely lost. He was like, all right, man. Not too long after that, I see him work out himself, and he's doing crazy amounts of push-ups, pull-ups, running all over the place. I was like, man, this guy's insane. And then not too long after that, we're having a conversation in the jail cell, and this conversation changed my life. He was, like, asking me questions about why I was in jail. And I was like, oh, my parents got divorced, and girls rejected me, and I didn't make the sports teams. And in the PG version of this, he's, he's, he looked at me, and he was like, quit being a victim. And I was just like, huh? Like, what do you mean? He's like, you're blaming everybody for your problems but yourself. He was like, there's plenty of people that went through what you went through that aren't in jail, right, Doug? And I'm like, yep. He was like, you have two choices. Be a man, look yourself in the mirror, and say, you got yourself here, and it's up to you to change. Or you can go be a wuss, go be a victim, go cry in the corner, say, woe is me, and blame everybody else for your problems. Like Most people will do that. And at this time, like a lot of the drugs have had come out of my system, I was starting to think somewhat clearly. And I was like, man, I think even though I don't want to believe he's right, like he is right. Like up until this point, like I didn't know what I was doing. I had 21 jobs by the time I was 21. I damaged relationships with my family. I was a drug addict in jail, selling drugs. Like all these problems in my life that I was responsible for, but I never took ownership of. And so that inspired me to start working out when I was in jail. And I tell you, that was one of the scariest things ever because as a kid who wanted to fit in, wanted people to like me, was bullied a lot in school, was called names, I was like, man, what are these people going to say about me when I can't work out? I know Because I knew like deep down that I wasn't going to be able to do anything. And I remember getting down to a push-up in front of a bunch of grown men and I collapsed my first time. And my cellmate Eric was like, Dude, like, why can't I do a push-up? He looked at me. He's like, because you're fat. I hated that word, man. I hated it. And I swore to myself in that moment I'd never be called that again. He was like, Doug, like, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. You have excess body fat. Your core is weak. You have no upper body strength. You're out of shape, so you're going to collapse every time you try to do a push-up. And I remember getting up, walking up and down the steps to take a break, which I could barely do because I was smoking a pack to a pack and a half of cigarettes a day before going into jail. 
and I felt crazy motivated. And, um, like I said, could barely do a push up, couldn't even do one for my knees when we started. And with his motivation and encouragement, I was able to do a set of 10 push ups and run a mile by the time I left my 90 day sentence. Cause that was some goals that we had set. And I finally felt like I was ready to, to transform my life. And it completely changed me. My experience, my, my experience in there changed me because now I had this innate level of confidence that I never had before. Because I, I was somebody that struggled with self-confidence and struggling with even wanting to think I could achieve like losing weight or getting strong because I looked at my friends or I looked at other people who had these, you know, were in, in great shape and had all these things. And I was like, it's going to take me forever to get there. And I think a lot of people think like that when they're trying to make a transformation. I focused on like one thing at a time. Like first step for me was do one push up from your knees, not do 10, do one from your knees. And I was like, wow, I can do this. Like, what's next? I never thought I could do a push-up from my knees. I'm going to do two and three. And that, like, snowballs, right? That stacks. And then now I'm doing a set of 10 push-ups from my knees. And it's like, what's next? Let's try one from your feet. Like, holy crap, I can do a real push-up. Stack that. And then I was able to, like I said, to do a set of 10 push-ups. Same thing happened with running. Like, I could barely, like, walk or jog when I got into jail. But it started with me just walking a little bit and then walking a little faster and then jogging. And then it got to the point where I could run a mile. And all of that built like this rock solid level of confidence with me. And it also helped me learn how to reattach behavior to emotion. I couldn't run anymore from my feelings, my emotions. Couldn't escape. Not in jail. So I had to learn how to, to harness all that when I was in there. I had, to, I had to learn how to use pain to my advantage. I would think about people who doubted me. I would think about what people would say to me as a kid when I would work out. I would think about how I doubted myself and I would channel all that while I was exercising and if I, and exercising and everything that my cellmate taught me also allowed me to develop discipline, never had discipline in my life. I was the guy that if I didn't like working at a place, I would just leave. I just wouldn't show up. I would just quit, you know, or I would get do something to get fired because I didn't care. But that taught me the importance of self-discipline. It taught me the importance of believing in myself. It taught me the importance of moving through discomfort, even though it's hard. So the day I left, I cried because I didn't want to leave because I felt like this guy, like I was like, this guy didn't know me before I came in here. Like, why? Like, why did he pick me to help tra transform my life? And I remember when I left, I was like, man, how can I ever repay you? And he said, don't mess up and pay it forward. And he gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place today, so I'll never forget where I came from. Got out, stayed on the fitness track, lost a bunch of weight, and then became a personal trainer help other people use fitness to transform their lives and was very blessed by the grace of God to build a very successful personal training business and time flew by through that and then in the, towards the end of 2013 my, my five years of probation were up because you know, to this day I haven't truck touched I haven't touched drugs since and so we, we since you were 20 you haven't touched drugs no I haven't done any drug any of the drugs I was abusing since I was 20 21 wow yeah and so my, one of my clients was a lawyer, so we wrote a letter to the judge for modification of my sentence, and he ended up give, granting me my day in court. Wow. And in January of 2014, he ended up um, following through with his end of the deal because I had followed through with my end of the deal, and he took the felony conviction off my record and gave me a PBJ. And I never realized, like in, in, in um, I never realized like how quickly somebody's life could change from being shackled as a convicted felon. To now being a free man and being able to do like all these things that you know regular citizens could do. And that inspired me to write my first book from felony to fitness to free to inspire people to make the most of their second chance and, you know, help them give them hope that they can also turn a negative into a positive and to focus on how far they've come and how far they have to go. But also that like life's about choices. Like when adversity strikes, we all have choices in how we handle it. And as hard as it is, like certain situations are, are unbearable. And I would never want to walk in certain people's shoes of, with some of the adversities that I've seen people had to go, have to go through. But the reality is you can't change that situation. You can only change your response to the situation. And that was like a hard lesson that I learned when I was in jail. I was, I was like, man, like as, as hard as, thing, as things were, like I made things a lot harder on myself and on others around me by the way I responded. Hmm. And, and so I wrote that book to, to kind of help people, you know, kind of 
handle adversity and handle life in a different way, you know, and just share some lessons that I had learned. And then felon to fitness to free to free. Yeah. And then that, um, just inspired me to continue sharing my story and doing what I'm doing now and talking to people like you on other people's podcasts. And, you know, I've written a couple other books along the way and, you know, been blessed to be able to be on some amazing podcasts and media outlets and start my own podcast and, you know, speak, you know, to places like, I mean, speaking to coach Dabo Sweeney and the Clemson football team after they won the national championship and other you know places that have brought me in to share my story and just being able to continue to pay it forward and um, help people transform their lives. It's interesting. The way you told the story, you said you were playing the victim. And then I, th- I think directly after that, you said, and that's how I, that's why I started working out. How do those things correlate playing the victim and then you working out and that being your transition? Um, you, you mentioned some things, but I'm curious, like why there's a million other, you could have played video games or you could have, why fitness? As a kid, if you had told me, like, Doug, what do you want to be happy? I was so uncomfortable with my body, what I looked like. And I thought that if I got to a certain place, fitness level, a certain fitness level, that people would like me. and I would get attention from girls. I thought that was like the thing Hmm. that girls didn't like me because of my body and the way I looked where I wanted to be more athletic, you know? Um, And so I was always like, man, like I just, maybe I need to make this change so I can start to get attention from people. And maybe this will help me, you know, navigate life better. I didn't know the mental and emotional benefits that fitness would give you. I had no idea. I thought I saw fitness as a pure physical thing. But what got me going in jail was, like I said, I was this kid who always deep down wanted to lose the weight. I was always the kid who, you know, who wore husky clothes as a kid when all my friends weren't, you know, and I was, you know, had more body fat than others that I just felt like, again, what's wrong with me? But I, my cellmate was like, I was like, man, this guy, why does this guy care about me so much? Like, I felt like I owed it to him. Again, it was like the people pleaser coming out in me to at least give it a shot. Plus, I was like, man, this guy has, like, no skin in the game as far as my life. Like, why does he, why does he want me to do this and try this? Hmm. And plus, I was like, man, I want something more for myself. Yeah. Like, I'm tired of, like, living in pain. And that's what, like, led me to at least try the fitness thing. And then when I didn't succeed at it, you know, while my cellmate, you know, gave me some you know, quote unquote tough love, he didn't give up on me, which was different for me. Yeah. When I didn't succeed. It, it gets me excited at the thought I grew up playing sports my whole life. Did football, swimming, rugby, lacrosse, baseball, basketball. We were always doing sports. Me and my, in the middle of five kids and we were busy. And people always talk about how sports prepare you, like they they help train these qualities. And, I mean, fitness is the same way where it's such a – it's such an approachable and practical way to practice and train these qualities like discipline, like pushing through discomfort, like uh, working towards a long-term goal. It's like I, I used to be probably more of a meathead than I am now. And I used to be like, oh, like fitness is, is the goal. But now it's like, no, I know that me doing this is like a tangible way for, for me to remind myself that I can make a difference <laughs> in the world in whatever sense, right? Like I can lose a pound or I can increase my bench press weight, whatever it is. It's like that just small self-centered insignificant thing trains my mind to be like, oh, well, hey, well, maybe I can make a difference in my community too. Or maybe I can make a difference in my state, my region, my country. Like, I think the more you get in that habit and fitness is kind of a low hanging fruit of that. So I'm thankful for sport and fitness and the role it's played in my life. Yeah. That's awesome. It's an interesting like perspective to hear on that like side of things. Like the, the other side of things, because you got to like the level that I, I, as a kid, I wanted to get to, like, I was the guy who was like, I want to be like a character on Madden. I want to be a guy who, right. you know, plays in the NFL or at least gets a shot to play and like moving up on the ranks. And, um, you know, obviously we, we've talked on my show about like that part of your story, but yeah. I think like one of the things that I want to say is that fitness ended up becoming like a false idol for me too. Wow. Because I said that 
as a kid, if you had told me, like, it's like, I, I tell this a lot where it's like, if there was a genie and it's like, Doug, I'm granting you three wishes, but I promise you, if I give you these three wishes, you are never allowed to do drugs again. Like, what would those three wishes be? I want a six pack and like big biceps, date pretty girls, and to make like a lot of money and have success legally. And after I got out of jail, I, 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 I pursued this fitness thing where I was like, I'm going to get as ripped as possible. And it was like, I'm going to get a six pack. And then I got a six pack and six pack wasn't enough. So I'm going to get an eight pack. Eight pack wasn't enough. I'm going to get a 10 pack. And then it's like, I got veins going through my abs. And then I'm like, but then this gets to the point where it becomes unhealthy to where it's now, that's now impacting my social life, my relationships, because I'm like, all right, well, I can't go out with friends tonight. I can't go on a date because that's going to make me potentially eat something that's not healthy. Right. I'd rather, I got to sit here and eat at home and then maybe I'll try to like join my friends afterwards or I'd be like watching football with friends at a friend's house and they'd be ordering pizza, which is like something like a normal thing, like a normal, like social thing, like health, a, in my mind, a healthy social thing. And I wouldn't eat pizza because I was afraid that I was like, Oh my God, like, am I going to lose my 10 pack or my 12, whatever it is. And what I also realized was I was still miserable with myself. Like I wasn't doing drugs. And I wasn't doing anything illegal, but inside I was still unhappy with myself. And I was even more unhappy because I had spent a significant amount of time chasing this thing, which I want to say it, it changed my life. Like I wouldn't be where I am today without fitness. No doubt. Completely tra transformed my life. And I still will say that fitness is like one of the most powerful things somebody can start getting into to change their life. No doubt. Because of what it teaches you, right? We've talked about that. However, because I began chasing it for the wrong reasons after it became, became a mechanism for me transforming my life. But then it was like, all right, like I can actually, I actually can lose weight. I actually can get fit. I'm going to chase this thing. Then it became like, I was then like not doing anything that wouldn't revolve around the, the health and fitness side of things. Mm. And I would, I got attention from girls, right? I had success as a personal trainer, like I said, but there was still something missing in my life. And that was my, my inability to have a healthy relationship with external validation. Because as a kid, I had an unhealthy relationship with external validation from things like, you know, substances or doing what I could to fit in or um, trying to get girls to like me or whatever, fill in the blank. Like I did it for external validation. Then as an adult, or I would say as a, my, my twenties, I did that with healthy things. And it ended up coming to a point for me where I hit an emotional rock bottom because I felt like I had been lied to where I was like, I can't believe that I got to this one place of being super healthy and getting attention from girls that I, why am I not happy? Like I just wasted all this time doing this. And that, that forced me to get a relationship with God, which I think is a very important part of my story as well, because I grew up old school Greek Orthodox and my view on things was if you're good, you go to heaven. And if you're bad, you go to hell. So I had convinced myself that I was already going to hell. So it didn't matter if I had a relationship with God or not. And I also like hated God. Like I mentioned I was angry at God when I went into jail mm -hmm. because I was told that, or I mean, my, my, my idea was that God's about love. You know, God wants everybody to you know, flourish and all these things. And if like, if like if the creator of the universe, the guy who's in charge of my life is all about love and is like guiding my life, he must really not like me to have had me go through what I went through. Like what the heck, right? Again, I was still kind of caught up in that victim mindset. And so along the same time as I'm realizing that something's got to change, I start training a pastor at a non-denominational church who was like nudging me. He was like, dude, you want to come to church with me on Sundays? I was like, nope, I'm going to hell for putting you through this workout. He's like, he's like, all right. He was very passive about it. He wasn't like jamming it down my throat. He was just very like, you know, passive and, and would nudge me every once in a while. And then a mentor of mine at the same time was like um, a very successful trainer. And he was like, Doug, like you got everything in your life. You know, you're a good looking guy. You've transformed your life. You're very personable. You're an author. You got a great story. Like, all these things. He's like, but, you just have no spirituality in your life. He's like, there's something missing that's not connecting everything else. And so it, it kind of gave me this um, 
inclination. I was like, man, like maybe I should try this Jesus thing. And when I say Jesus and being a Christian, like some people cringe because they think of like, you know, maybe Christians who check a box on Sundays and then they're jerks the rest of the week. For me, it was more about like the relationship side of things. And what happened was I ended up after, um, it was like the last time I had, cause what I would do is I would get attention from girls. And then as soon as they were interested in me, I just kind of would either like check out or wouldn't get any kind of attachment. I would wonder why this was happening. And that pattern would continue. And then after the last time it happened, I called my client who's a pastor and I said, Hey man, I think I'm ready to give this Jesus thing a try. And Andrew, it would have, it was almost like I told him he just won the lottery. I was like, why is this guy so happy? Like, I don't understand. Ended up going into his office and, and praying that I acknowledge that Jesus is my savior and that he died for my sins and all that. And I felt this same weight come off my back that I did when I was doing drugs. Like, I can't make this up. I started crying and call my mom and I just, for the first time, like authentically apologized to her. And then I started to understand that I might not have been proud of everything that I went through, but God was because he not only used it to help me transform my own life, but to help other people transform their pain and transform their lives as well. And that I couldn't make up the fact that I had a guy in a cell helping me use fitness to change my life. And now I'm helping other people like do that to change their lives. Like you couldn't make that up. Mm. And it's like that helped me connect the dots. And it also helped me make peace with my past. I know that what, what happened in the past, it's done. It's over. And it was about me moving forward. So that's what Christianity and, and spirituality and my relationship with God has done for me is that it helped me move past my past in an authentic way. Mm. It helped me make peace with all that. Are you still in touch with that mentor from jail? He passed away last year. Um, it's just kind of bittersweet. Not, I mean, not bittersweet. It was like, it's awful. But the bittersweet part of all that was, um, after he died, his mom messaged me and was like, hey, man. She was like, hey, like, I know, you know, you knew my son, Eric, very well. He spoke a lot about you or whatever, and he, I just want to let you know he passed away. And he was gutted and heartbroken. But then I started getting, like, I got, like, a message from somebody in his family. And she was like, I just want to thank you. And I was just like, why? And she's like, you know, I started seeing who he was connected with, I think, on social media or something. And somehow, you know, I came across you, and I just, I knew you talked about you or something like that had happened. And she started to see, like, me going on podcasts and sharing the story of how he helped save my life. And so it gave them some positive memories of them, mm -hmm. of him. And they were just like, thank you for reminding us of who he was before, like he got into drugs and before he was incarcerated and stuff like that. Thank you for like sharing with us the memories of the Eric that we once knew. I never thought in a million years that me sharing my story would, would help with that. Never. There's a lot of hope in that message too, though, where it's, you know, this guy, had his struggles, had his flaws, still was very much in the thick of those when he interacted with you and was able to positively impact your life in such a in such a positive way, right? In such a drastic, massive way where now you point to him as the pivot point, right? Yeah. Crazy. It's crazy. And I think that one of the other things that was really important to me in that moment was I got invited to speak to that to, at his funeral hmm. and was able to go there and just pay forward the message and tell the story, tell the story to his like live to his family and his friends. And it was pretty surreal because when I started doing this, like I never thought I would, it's like nobody thinks they'd ever get, they'll ever get to where they actually are. Right. Hmm. Not, it's not even because of a self-confidence thing. It's like, I, I would say I would guess that most people when they're like starting off their career, they're like, yeah, I'm going to be like the best at this or I'm going to be doing this or I'm going to be doing it's like, no, you're just focused on like gradually like moving up, right? Gradually getting better and doing what you need to. But then over time, you start stacking these small wins. Over time, you start stacking these these next versions of yourself and you continue to grow and grow and grow. If you, if you obviously if you do it the right way and you're not like um, self-sabotaging a lot like I did. And, but I never thought that me sharing my story, they would have that kind of impact on his family ever. Mm. I mean, I, I knew and I was pretty content that I knew my story resonated with people that listened to it. Parents that would reach out to me, people that had struggles with addiction, that sort of thing. But I never thought I'd be getting a message being like, thanks for sharing my, your story about Eric. Because now that he's passed away, we have some positive memories of him. I never, never crossed my mind. Mm. 
There's a saying that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. You've mentioned your lack of peace or your desire for it. You've mentioned uh, the need for external validation. And I just think about all, all the different ways that we so often search for external validation or the solution to our problems, our pain, our discomfort, whatever it is, just seeking like that peace, which Paul said that the goal of life is not to achieve, is not to build, it's not to network, it's to to reach peace, which is profound in and of itself. But the like, I, I feel like there's only one solution to that, and um, it's amazing how you tried your hand at a couple different, <laughs> a couple different options, and it seems like you're in a good place now. So well done, dude. Thanks, well man. I mean, I, I'm in a I'm in a much better place. I mean, life's not perfect. I still we obviously all still have our demons and our battles, but I'm at least at pe- I'm at peace with I know that there's something there's some something out there guiding me, mm-hmm. and that all of what I'm going through or all that I'm doing now there's there's purpose in it. There's meaning in the po- in the negative and the positive, right? And it's like it's funny. It's that we think that the things that we're gonna they're, they're, we chase these things that we think are gonna bring us peace, but they in turn create give us more chaos, right? Like we chase external validation from other people and that becomes addicting. We chase external validation from substances that becomes addicting. We t- we, all these things, right, that we think are going to bring us peace. But it's like this this false level of this false peace, right? It's like fake. Right. Short term. Short term. How do you view uh, making friends now or deep connection and relationship now? Because it started off with like you – doing drugs with people, then you selling drugs to people. Then, you know, with girls, it's like, Hey, I got a 10 pack and that's how I'm going to get attention. So how do you approach relationships in this version of life? I mean, the thing I always tell myself and I tell others is I try to surround myself with people that bring the best out in me and that not only love and support me, but challenge me unconditionally. Like I don't need people pat me on the back all the time. I can do that myself now. What I need, like the true friends that I like to keep in my corner, are the ones that not only, obviously I want them to kind of support what I'm doing and like me for who I am, and I think that's a given. But the the harder part is to find people that are are comfortable checking you and being like, hey, Doug, you shouldn't have said that. Or, hey, Doug, like, you can do better. Or, hey, Doug, I've noticed that you haven't been taking care of yourself lately. Are you okay? Like those types of people. Because that's what helps you grow, Right? Like the validation, the support from your friends. I mean, I think that's great and that's important. But what really helps you grow is when you get that true friend who checks you when you're you think you're you're higher than you really are, who checks you when you're not aware of what you're doing because you're caught up in your own madness. Right. That's coming full circle because the Doug that didn't like like discomfort, which is all of us, by the way. Right. It's like. No one wants to put be put in that situation where you're getting called out. We all know that physical response that, like, you feel frustration or you want to lash out in anger. Or like, yo, you don't know anything. Who are you to speak in my life, right? That's when I hear feedback, still I have to swallow that part of me to be like, I mean, this is the biggest thing I've learned in, ma- in marriage. <laughs> the beautiful thing is, like, I'll get called out on something and it will take me 400 times of Sean saying, hey, you're doing this and you you have a short temper here for me to actually put my ego aside and believe her. So how have you reached that point? Because that is very full circle. I mean, I, when I say that conversation with my cellmate in jail changed me, like I really do mean wow. that. Wow. Because it taught me that I don't know everything. And I don't have everything. I don't have everything figured out. And that constructive criticism. I'm talking like, obviously I'm not talking about people that you don't know online or off whatever, just chirping at you. I mean like people that you, you know, have your best interest at heart that are constructive, constructively giving you criticism. There's so much value in that. And I think once you can accept the fact that you're not perfect and you're never going to be perfect ever, ever, you let your guard down a little bit and you know that, okay, like I'm not perfect. So when somebody tells me I need to work on something, like it's okay because I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm continually needing to work on things. And you see value in that. 
right? Because we can only we can't we can only see what's in front of us. We can't sometimes we can't see our blind spots. And the people closest to us, the people that are in our corner, they can help us see our blind spots. Mm-hmm. And when you can make that shift and saying, okay, when somebody's criticizing you or saying something to you that bothers them about you or whatever, it's not because you're a horrible person. It's because they care enough about you in that relationship to say something. You know, think about it. Like, is it, are you like randomly reaching out to random people online that you see struggling and being like, Hey, you do better. Like, no, like you're more interested in like texting like your brother or your sister or your wife or your husband or whoever, when something's bothering you because that's meaningful to you. And if you can just say, okay, like, I know, again, I'm not, I know I'm not a horrible person and I'm just going to work on this. Not only is it going to improve the relationship with yourself, but it's going to improve the relationship with that other person. Because what happens if, you know, and I'm sure you've been through this, like just based on what you said, I've been through this in relationships where somebody's like, Hey, like you need to work on something. And you're like, no, I don't. What's that do? That creates even more tension in the relationship, which is the, the thing you don't want. Right. Which is the thing you actually fear by not opening up and saying, I'm struggling with this. You fear that if you open up and you say, you know what? Like I am short tempered or I haven't been like doing this thing. You fear that, that other person is going to think less of you. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 You've covered a lot of ground. Your story is absolutely unbelievable. (laughs) And it is cool to think of how you're paying it forward very much. So in the form of your books, your podcasts, but tell people how they can get more of you or hear more of your story. Yeah, man. I just wanted to, to thank you once again. I mean, this is awesome. I love talking to you. You're so easy to talk to. And, um, you know, I, I never thought that I would be here like having conversations like this. Like I was the, it's funny. Like I was the kid that I was afraid of like asking a girl out. I was afraid of public speaking had crippling panic and anxiety that you just never know like where things will go. And a lot of this has come from my pain. A lot of this has come from my adversity. Like, so when people are like, would you ever like go back and change it all? I'm like, no, because because of my pain, I've developed self-confidence because of my pain. I've become a great speaker. Because of my pain, I'm on podcasts. Because of my pain, I'm a better person. Like all those things that that pain taught me. Because without the drugs, take the drugs away, I was still hyper unconfident, super insecure, unhealthy, hard, you know, hard. I think probably to talk to at times because I was kind of guarded and closed off. Like horrific people pleaser. All these things. Well, take the drugs away. Like I was still all of that. So even if I didn't do the drugs, I would have ha- I would have had to deal with all that stuff the rest of my life. So I just wanted to say that and, and, um, yeah, if people are inspired by what I had to say and want to learn more about me, the best place is my website, dougbopes.com. It's got links to my, my podcast and other interviews I've done as well as um, my books are there as well. Um, my podcast is called the adversity advantage and you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. And then also as far as social media, I'm probably more most active on Instagram, uh, at Doug Bobst. So thanks again, man, for having me. Last question. What's next for Doug Bobst? You've done so much. You've experienced so much. What are you looking forward to? I think what's next for me as I'm like sitting here talking now is I'm working on a fourth book. I'm actually like working on rewriting my story, not like in a, in a different way necessarily, but when I wrote From Felony to Fitness to Free, I was such a, such a different place in my life. And I only wrote it up until a certain point. Like I, for, I forget, I think it was like shortly after I'd become a personal trainer and I ended up like joining my first like, you know, professional like networking like business group or whatever. And so much more has happened since then that I feel like there needs to be more depth and detail added to that. So I'm working on that. And then one of the things I'm also really passionate about is just trying to reach more kids because so many like kids now are struggling with addiction, struggling with their mental health. And so just doing what I can to help them. I mean, one of the things that I do now is I end up mentoring like young men. You know, it's like parents will just find me through social media, through uh, referrals or whatever. And they're like, hey, like my my son is like struggling with addiction. My son is like coming out of a treatment center. Can you help him with fitness? Can you help him? You know, can you share your story with him? And so these these kids end up really connecting with me because they can relate to me. And then I slowly, you know, will you know get them and you know, I get them involved in fitness and helping them rebuild their self-confidence and self-esteem and um, just trying to help with the families as well. And so it's like, it's really cool to see things come full circle with that. That's important work. Keep at it. Thanks, man. Well done. And thanks for joining us here in person. 
I did an interview with Doug on his podcast as well. So if you're interested in checking that out, we'll link that information. Uh, a lot to look forward to, and I'm excited for what's next, Doug. Thanks for having me too.